Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, Howie talks about a deadly and terrifying virus rarely thought about in most first world countries, rabies. Then I get into the legend of the man with no country, which is far more true than you would expect. Content warning, I expect foul language, of course, but in Howie's story, we are going to talk about viruses and outdated and very questionable medical practices. In my story, there is a minor mention of self-harm, but other than that, it should be good. Let's get ready for another human exception. Anyway, what's your terrible thing, Kayla? Rabies? Oh, my thing's not terrible. Hallie's thing is terrible. Mine's Hallie's terrible. Hallie's, <laughs> Hallie's is, is rabies. I, I got so deep in that I was like, oh, here we go. What have I done to myself? <laughs> what have I done to myself? It was, it's really interesting. And at the same time, it's fucking horrifying. It's fascinating. It's fascinating, but the world really is trying to just constantly kill us. <laughs> I mean, I don't really blame it, but... <laughs> well, yeah, at this point, I mean, she she's owed, but... <laughs> also, though, like, because I had a friend who, at the beginning, because rabies is a, a virus, and I had a friend at the beginning of the pandemic asking me, like, why does a virus want to eliminate us so badly? And I was like, you're giving a lot of credence to something that doesn't even have, like, two it, helixes. Its um, job is to replicate, yeah. Its job is to replicate. It doesn't. It doesn't have thoughts and feelings and motive. It, it just doesn't have it motivation. Just, yeah, it doesn't. And and I think that's something that uh, people forget. Is like we get really upset about things like, oh, this is just a rant I have because people are stupid. It upsets me. But like, people are like, oh, I, I'm so self centered. Why is everything trying to kill me? And what's up with this virus trying mm-hmm. to eliminate me? And I'm like, it's not about you though. Calm mm-hmm. down. It has it's absolutely just, nothing to do with you. Also, nope. it doesn't have the capacity to even understand that you exist. Yeah, that would be like that would be like telling asking a star if it thought about us. Like we, right? Like it doesn't. We don't. It's like we're not trying to destroy stars, right? We're not trying to do that actively. We're just existing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, oh. sorry. No, no, not at all. I I was kind of in that that line of thinking when I was going through this and looking at the, particularly the the ancient history of yeah. how it was studied. This is really interesting. I don't know if y'all want me to go, but I can. Yeah, do it. Go. Do it. Do the thing. I'll um, be the right. it, so. Oh, they're oh, perfect. Fantastic. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're gonna need it. Uh, so I decided that let's just pick rabies off of the giant list that we have of things to look at. Um, I am going to do Claire Patterson next, though, the guy who discovered the all the lead um, in oh. everything and was the guy who made the first clean room. Really interesting. He said, guy. let's not chew on bullets, kids. Yep. Let's oh. not lick paint. Yeah. Yep. I had a, I had uh, someone in my rifle team who used to put their bullets in their mouth until I was like, uh, oh, my guy. No, no don't yep. do that. 
For so For many reasons. reasons. It's a terrible idea. So For many so reasons. So many. Yeah, that's just not a. But it was interesting because there was, and with that, today there was just a study that came out that was talking about how many, I don't remember the exact number, and I'll find the study and post it. Um, how many IQ points boomers lost because of lead exposure? Oh, that tracks. Oh, wow. <laughs> yep. Oh, and how they're starting to link it to the advancements in Alzheimer's and dementia oh. and just the really oh, interesting so frothing rage that happens to them and the personality switches that happens at a certain point in their lives. Yeah. Huh. Yep. Everything like, makes sense now. It does. Yeah. I went, oh, that, I get that. That, mm-hmm. Yep. Because it was the Victorians and the silent generation that, put all the lead into everything and then the boomers were exposed to it and now we're at the victim of yeah so there you go started Maybe. sucking on bullets started <laughs> started licking walls and chewing on oh bullets back in my day yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh lord okay so the earth is trying to kill us um as is rabies because it's horrifying all right. Um, I did the same thing you had to do, Courtney. I was like, I got to go down this content trigger warning list because there's a lot here. Yep. So uh, uh, rabies is a virus. So there we go. Uh, so illness, death, including we're going to talk about deaths of children, uh, animal attacks, including dog attacks, animal and human harm, animal experimentation, on and on and on down the list. There's quite a bit here. So just forewarned. Um, so. When I was looking at the list of early symptoms of rabies, it's horrifying because nowadays, if you have, like we were talking about very early on when we started recording, um, if you have a headache or fever, nausea, vomiting, you're probably going to go get a COVID test just to be sure. Hopefully oh. you do that. Um, or you're going to try to go back and go, did I have my flu shot? You know, just we think of that stuff automatically. Um, those are also the early symptoms, the showing symptoms or signs of rabies. So that's why it's so horrifying because those early symptoms mimic other conditions, particularly other viruses. But with rabies, by the time those symptoms show up, it's probably too late, unfortunately. And it quickly goes into this rapid decline. The later symptoms include agitation, anxiety, confusion, hyperactivity, difficulty swallowing, fear of water, fear of air being blown on the face, and then you get into hallucinations, insomnia, partial or full paralysis, coma, and then death. Your brain is on fire by that point. A bunch of those are ADHD symptoms, too. I was going to say, I have a third of those yeah. symptoms on any given day. Also, yeah. I hate having air blown in my face, so please don't use that as a marker. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's like one, like the the big one that, that gets looked at a lot is the fear of water. Like the, yeah. the, the deep, like they can't even look at a glass of water. It absolutely makes them go batshit. And that's, by that point, you're, you're toast. It's. It's really horrifying. It's like, okay, that's... Mm, mm, mm. Um, rabies is almost always fatal. And by the time symptoms start appearing, it, it really is too late at that point. So the recommendation as of now 
is to get the rabies vaccine immediately after being bitten by any animal, wild or domestic, or even having any kind of wound or injury by any animal. It does not matter. Um, doctors even recommend seeking immediate medical attention if you are near a bat. For example, one horrifying story that I read, when you discover that one flew into your room in the middle of the night. Definitely did the not. Oh, you did not do that. I've definitely yeah. had that happen. Definitely oh, Courtney. <laughs> I didn't die. Oh, yeah. I'm fine. Close no, I know, but still. Oh, gosh, yeah. Where was I going to go? Nowhere. I know, but still. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I'm, so, I'm at a disadvantage yeah. here because I think bats are cute. <laughs> I love they bats. Are. They're so cute. I caught one we'll in a juice class. Bats. I caught one in a juice glass. I let it back outside because it got stuck in the house. Oh. You, yep, should have gotten a rabies vaccine. Um, that was fine. <laughs> oh, okay. For now. No, for now. Yeah, <laughs> oh, God. This so, like roughly. 10 years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah, you would have known by now. It doesn't oh, incubate I would be that dead. One. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> incubate that one. Um, so, roughly 59,000 people across the world still die from rabies each year. It is incredibly rare for this to happen in the U.S. due to the availability of the vaccine and rabies awareness programs for the public. We see these all the time. When summer comes around and people are going out to the parks, they're outside more. There are always big alerts and things like, if you find a bat, don't pick it up. Don't do this. If you get bit by anything, come, you know. It's why we have vaccinations for our domestic animals. Please vaccinate your animals. Holy shit. Uh, yep. Shouldn't have to say that. Um However, in the last few years, uh, it's been, there have been deaths. So in 2019 and 2020, the U.S. didn't record any deaths from rabies. Yay for us. However, last year, we were there all were inside. seven. We were all inside. Exactly. <laughs> last year, there were seven. Uh, all of the cases involved exposure to bats. This is my warning. Please be nice to bats. They are in, they're a huge part of our incredibly complex ecosystem, but you should take exposure to them very seriously. So, um, I was looking at the Mayo Clinic's site on rabies. Uh, so it says that any animal, any, sorry, any mammal can spread rabies. Any mammal. Doesn't matter. The animals most likely to spread rabies to people include... The domestic ones, cats, cows, dogs, ferrets, goats, horses, wild animals that have been documented spreading rabies to humans include bats, of course, beavers, coyotes, foxes, monkeys, raccoons, skunks, and woodchucks. 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 So woodchucks. there we go. Don't really talk about woodchucks much, but they, yep, they can spread rabies. Um, one of the cases that happened in 2021, there was a man in Illinois, and I'll quote here, said, in one case, a man in Illinois who had a bat roost in his home mm, awoke in August to find the bat on his neck, oh, according no. to a statement from the Illinois Department of Public Health. Dracula. The bat was captured. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So they caught the bat. It tested positive for rabies. But the man declined to take a vaccine because of a long-standing fear of vaccines. Rip. About a month after contact with the rabid bat, the man started experiencing neck pain, headaches, difficulty controlling his arms, 
finger numbness and difficulty speaking before then dying not long afterwards. Yep. It's not. Yeah. You don't fuck around with it. Why vaccines are important. Yeah. 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 And, And honestly, like, I know that we can't force things upon people, particularly when we're talking about body autonomy, but that's a public health hazard. And yeah. oy, oy, oy. so he could have spread it to someone else, uh, particularly if he was if he was a, a basically batshit crazy and had injured someone else. Like it's yeah. So anyways, um, rabies can live in the body for months or even years before causing visible symptoms. However, that's not usually the case. Usually it comes on pretty quickly. Very scary. I don't like it. Um. Again, there are rabies vaccines for pets and farm animals, so to get that taken care of. I actually, we actually just stopped doing the rabies vaccine on our 17-year-old cat because the vet said at this point it doesn't really make much of a difference for yeah. them when they get to that age, which is totally understandable, but everybody else in the house gets one, so. Yep. Um, so, um... With, of course, the advancements in medical science, we know a lot more than we did in centuries past. So for a little backtracking, humans have been living with domesticated dogs for about 14,000 years. However, some estimates put that at almost 32,000 years, which is pretty impressive. Um, We've also been familiar with diseases that they can carry since around that time, and there has been some awareness and and the spread of those illnesses. This includes rabies uh, that we're going to talk about here. And that awareness only grew as people and domesticated animals moved from farmlands into villages, towns, and then eventually cities. And this goes all the way back as far as ancient Mesopotamia. We're going to talk about ancient Mesopotamia again, <laughs> like I did before. Um, I don't know why I keep coming back to that, but it's interesting. So the origin of the disease's name is either from the Sanskrit word rabhas, which is, means to do violence, or the Latin word rabere, which means to rage. In ancient Greece, it was also known as Elissa, which is the word for violence. And today, the virus that causes rabies is classified in the genus Lissa virus. It's also been uh, known as hydrophobia, which refers to that symptom, that fear of water. So there you go. There's your etymology for that. Um, When we talk about ancient Mesopotamia, if you listen to our episode on the Nibiru conspiracy, yes, I (laughs) talked a lot in there. I know it's all tied together. (gasps) It's all connected. It's all connected. I I talked a lot in there about cuneiform, which was the language used in ancient Mesopotamia. Curiously enough, there have been cuneiform tablets that were discovered in Baghdad and Iraq in the middle of the 20th century uh, that, quote, recounted the laws of Ashuna, a Sumerian and later Akkadian city-state located in present Iraq. The city was most prominent uh, around 1950 to 1850 BCE, and the tablet is dated somewhere around 1770 BCE. And it describes Sumerian rules and regulations, attesting to the fact that a casual link between the bite of a rabid animal and a human death from rabies was well-recognized almost 4,000 years ago. So here is the... It's wild. Here's a picture of one of the tablets. Pretty dope. Oh, no, it didn't save correctly. 
I'll get them. They're pretty cool looking. How they like, they're taught, it's literally translated like if the dog becomes rabid and it doesn't bite the owner and the owner doesn't take care of it, then it's on the owner. If the dog causes deaths, it's both like, whoa, okay. Really interesting. I'll get those for you, Kayla, because they're common um, public domain, but Sweet. really interesting that they were able to do this. And then later on, they found cuneiform tablets kind of in the same area. And there they found what they call dog incantations that reflect the notion of rabies being caused by something present in the saliva of the afflicted animal, quote, akin to the poison transmitted by a snake bite or a scorpion sting. An herb seems to have been used after a dog bite, and the biting dog's movement was restricted. Dogs were thought more likely to become rabid during a lunar eclipse occurred at the oh. year's end. And I just go, oh, you were so close. You were so close. <laughs> Gotta throw the moon in there, though. Uh. Um, there have been other tablets that have uh, been found specifically denoting the word rabid as it translates to modern English when talking about dogs. It's just so interesting to me that they were able to do all of this and, and kind of figure it out and then kind of miss it. And I was like, that's pretty good for about 4,000 years ago. Yeah. So um, there were there were herbalists and writers and doctors, researchers at the time who were um, transcribing how they were caring for rabies victims. But there was very little that they could do for that paranoid, feverish, paralyzed person who had fallen victim to the virus. So interestingly enough, one of the first human animal health precautions taken during this time, again, remember all the content warnings, um, involved shepherds cutting the tails off puppies when they were 40 days old, thinking this would help prevent the dogs getting rabies and spreading it to the herds or themselves. Interesting. I don't know. I couldn't okay. find any research as to why that belief persisted, but it stuck around for a while. Oh, there. I know. Yeah, there were there were some some interesting tactics that they took. Um, and we'll talk religion, of course, is going to get into this here in a minute. Um, oh, undoubtedly. Gets, oh, undoubtedly. It, gets it doesn't belong here. Of course it's here. <laughs> right. Uh, so there was a, I'm going to butcher this dude's name, uh, Perianus Dioscorides, who lived from 40 to 90 AD. He lived in Sicilia, which was founded by the Assyrians. It became a Roman city, and now it's in, it's located roughly in southern Turkey, if you want a geographic location. Um, he was a physician and what was termed at the time a pharmacologist, and it said that he actually had the first real accurate description of rabies, and his proposal was the cauterization of the bitten part as prevention. Okay, that seems legit. It, I, you know what? As far as idea. ancient tactics yeah. go, yeah, I, I get where he was coming from. So fire, fire, bad, fire, burn, part, take part off, person live, which never happened, but they tried. Oh. <laughs> and even from like, even from like a, a modern perspective, like cauterizing a wound is a legitimate mm -hmm. way of like preventing infection. So you're preventing further infection. Also, the virus wouldn't be able to withstand that heat. So if there was some residual virus that hadn't gotten, you know, too far into the bloodstream, you'd have a better chance. You'd have a better chance. Yeah. 
it's uh it's so interesting the way they did this stuff so all of the rabies cases um however were basically treated with a mixture of hopeful conjecture or some of the treatments were eventually denounced as unnecessarily brutal oh, okay. which then as yep as we move into the middle ages speaking of brutal Ooh. Not a whole lot changes there. Um, however, dogs do become seen as unclean, so they were often avoided or killed. And medical practitioners advised the cleaning of bites and saw rabies as a poison that would spread through the body and ultimately take the patient's life. And there was essentially no no hope if you were bitten. So they would kick all the dogs out of a city or kill them. Um, they were just they were seen as filthy animals, essentially. So, Poor an interesting shift. I know, I know. Cats, totally fine. Dogs, fuck them. Get them out of here. Like, <laughs> it's like, how did we go from shepherds to this? All right. Um, so when we start talking about um, Middle Ages and the burgeoning of religious belief and using religion as medical practitioners, not good. So... And I'll quote here. Uh, there's a really great write-up on um, the... Oh, God. I lost the thing. Where'd it go? On... Here we go. Sorry. a lot On the uh, National Library of Medicine. That's where I got a lot of this. They did a massive paper in 2017 on it. It's really, really well done. And you can actually read it. Like, you can be a layman and read it and not have to... Or a layperson and read it and not have to know a bunch of medical jargon because it it's very easy to read uh so quote a miracle cure was deemed to be found at several specialized religious sites such as the church of the village of ondage renamed saint hubert where louis the first the pious one of charlemagne's sons and his successor hey, hey there it is oh, <laughs> authorized the transfer of the eponymous saint's thigh bones in 826 ce this abbey, located near Liget, Belgium, became a specialized center for rabies prevention. At the time, prevention before a bite took the form of applying a white-hot key of St. Hubert to dogs so they would not contract the disease. So they branded Love dogs, basically. Love yeah. that. Love that. Love it. Here's ass. a picture of what that looks like. Oh, no. Okay. There's oh, just the nail. Oh, <laughs> There's a, like, there's another version oh. of the key. Yeah, so there's two versions. There's the the nail branding kind of thing. And then there's another version of the key that's actually more of like a religious sacrament type of deal, which is way more innate that you can't heat it. It, you know, it doesn't work like that. Um yeah, this is for some reason. Like. And I know better, but for some reason my brain was like, Hallie's about to show you a picture of a dog with a burn on it. And I was like, no, nope. please. And then nope. I remember and everything's fine. But the anxiety is still there. No, fair. <laughs> That's fair. I was also yep. worried about some sort of like grotesque burning nope. situation. Oh, no, my um, stomach dropped. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I would never do. Would never do that. <laughs> no, I know you wouldn't. I just. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fair. Um, so they would do this to dogs that were allowed to stay in the the village around the abbey thinking that the key and, you know, God would keep the dog from being contracting rabies and then spreading it. Sure. Uh, however, in humans, because they were treating uh, rabies victims at this abbey, they didn't use the key. 
So in humans, quote, the preferred method of rabies prevention after a bite was based on incision of the forehead and implantation of threads from the saint's supposedly miraculous stole accompanied by prayers and fasting. Oh, that's no, that's no sense. Yep. Yep. That makes no sense whatsoever. That just doesn't even. Why are you cutting people on the forehead and putting fiber threads on their bleeding cut? Because Jesus. I mean, (laughs) yeah, okay, yeah. (laughs) I want that on a t shirt. I want that on a t shirt so bad. (laughs) Because Jesus. (laughs) Because, just because Jesus. All lower case. down off the ground. You need the wood. That That is an excellent excuse. Why are you drinking wine on a Sunday morning? Read the shirt. Because Jesus. Because Jesus. Hello. Mark. Why are you why are you burning down this bank and yelling at people and throwing rocks at stockbrokers? Because Jesus. <laughs> right. Because Jesus, yeah. Okay, why There's are you the, uh... why are you walking into that brothel? Okay. Because, because Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> My friends are sex workers. Jesus Christ. Lord. You have to you have to I'm support artists. Support local artists. That's what it is. Oh my god, Nathan. <laughs> because sex work is so hard. Like I've never, but that's because oh, I sat yeah. down and was like, what would it entail? I don't have any of these skills. I know. <laughs> you want me to do what with my legs? I'm sorry, I can barely stand. Take photos? I don't think so. I look like a beached whale in every angle. Sex work is work, y'all. <laughs> it's true. Oh my goodness. I put the article in chat uh, and we'll link oh. it in the in the notes too so you can see the cuneiform tablets. They're really cool. Cool. Sorry, um, thank you. No, you're good. You're good. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm there now. <laughs> Oh, man. So we'll move on to the Renaissance. Um, So during this time period after the Middle Ages, some scientists, because we started to get actual scientists at that point, as far as we can call them such, um, (laughs) they really did make good attempts at trying to understand the disease and not just understanding it, but the causes and the treatments of it. Uh, There was actually a man, Julien Le Polymere, lived from 1520 to 1588. And he wrote seven medical textbooks in all, and he wrote one specifically on rabies. However, at the same time, uh, these same scientists were telling people, just wait a bezoar or a gallstone around your neck, and you won't get rabies. So... Garlic for vampires? That's a a bezoar, yeah. Um, I think it's thought to, like, absorb things. It's, again. it's like a, I think bezoars are supposed to be like an absorbent, like thought to have like an absorbative property. Yes. Yeah. And they're actually just like a, um, a collection of calcified junk that comes from a cow or goat that's in mm-hmm. their stomach. And you have to like kill them and like dig through their guts to find them. Oh, gross. Okay. Oh, mm-hmm. sorry. Yeah, it's nasty. No, that's all. It's all good. It, it's it's so interesting to me that that was one of the they were like, oh, just wear this around your neck and you'll be fine. Not just from rabies, but from everything. Yeah. Cure-alls. Yeah. Maybe you like elixirs with them, too. 
Yes. Yes, that's right. Gosh, Bezos would be a really interesting topic. Yeah. Consider it for the future. Add it to the list. <laughs> yep. So during this time, also, a Polish-Lithuanian artillery general, uh, whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce other than I'll attempt the last name, uh, Simon Minowicz, I think, or something close to that. I apologize to my Polish friend if I mispronounce that. Um, made a very early attempt at biological warfare by firing hollow shells containing the saliva of rabid dogs in 1650. Like, I'm kind yep. of impressed. I know, I, I was too. <laughs> it's like, you madman, but also, that's really inventive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, fascinating. So that was a little tidbit where I was like, the fuck? Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> interesting dude, I guess. What? Right now. So there, all of this happened over the course of, you know, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. But then we're going to time jump because by the mid-19th century, documentation of rabies cases and victims had grown. Largely because governing powers ordered it to be done. And unfortunately, it had a lot to do with colonization. So in one very large case that was cited, always it's always down to white dudes <laughs> who are taking things that don't belong to them. Yeah. Um, there was a huge plague of rabies-infected mongoose in the Caribbean <laughs> because mongooses were introduced there to kill the rat populations in the sugarcane fields. And then people were getting bit by the mongooses, and this leads to the colonial powers uh, ruling that place who realized that rabies was a real issue because the people, the slaves, largely harvesting their crops that made them rich were dying and they weren't making enough money. So, Yeah, dang slaves. Yeah. Dying when you need them. <laughs> yep. yep. At the same time, fear of dogs in Europe started to bleed away, which led toward better domestic animal care, including the first set of rules and regulations around aggressive dogs, documentation of dog bite victims and the elimination of rabid and feral stray dogs so there's some kind of organization here like oh this is a problem not just a oh sucks for you you got bit by a rabid animal now you're gonna die enjoy it <laughs> they were actually trying to prevent it at this point but it's still very it, it's it's very difficult even now so as the understanding of rabies as a disease grew, there was still no better understanding during this time of the prevention of post-bite rabies. And this stumped scientists and researchers and doctors. And unfortunately, even during uh, the 19th century, many treatments after a bite remained faith-based or other strange <laughs> superstitions like, get this, I'm finding root causes of phrases that we use now. Like applying hair of the dog to a bite. The, the dog that bit you, you take their hair off and you apply it to the bite. And that's literally where we get the phrase hair of the dog. Wow. So excited. I'm so excited when I find shit like that. Because every time I meet someone <laughs> who is like has an interest in history or anything, I'm like, do you know where the phrase to blow smoke up your ass comes from? And then I get to tell them that story. And if that's they walk away story. and shake their head, I know they're not a friend. That's how I decide now. <laughs> I love it. This is a good plan. You know they're a good friend when they come back and they have like their story. Yeah. Let me tell you something real weird right now about smoke. You hear about the girl yeah. who fucked a dolphin? 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jake just choked. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Oh. Okay. Oh. Um <laughs> So this was all still confusing to those researching rabies and they were actually trying at this point. And they were also not understanding that not every animal bite led to the illness. And then the cruelty of treatments to people who were victims of bites still continued. So I'll quote here. Heads up. Uh, in 1830s London, children bitten by potentially rabid dogs still underwent surgery or cauterization of the wound. Patients with clinically declared rabies were plunged into cold water or hot oil or were later euthanized by being stifled between mattresses or made to bleed to death. Stifled between mattresses? Stifled between mattresses! That's, that's wow. so fucked. That is the, one of the most fucked up things. What do you think they're gonna do? Why not just... You can't cause their death as kindly as possible, as humanely as possible? What the fuck? Ugh... Okay. However, we have a hero in all of this, and it is the good man, the good doctor, Louis Pasteur. So, um, I love him. Talk about a totally selfless person who really just wanted people to live better lives. Like, Aww. incredible, dude. Uh, so, quote, rabies virus attenuation, a live virus was first validated by experiments which Pasteur and his team reported in 1884, documenting survival of dogs vaccinated by live or attenuated uh, vaccines before viral challenge. The prototypical vaccine against rabies was first used as salvage therapy in humans presenting signs of declared clinical rabies with a rapid documented failure in at least one instance, which was a child in late June 1885. However, the vaccine was, uh, uh, sorry, the vaccine was to meet resounding success in patients exposed to the rabies virus, but yet no signs of declared infection, which is true now. If you start showing signs, it's likely too late. So that is yeah. why even now they say you get bit, you get exposed in any way, shape or form, just freaking get it. Because if you don't have rabies and you get the vaccine, not going to hurt you. If you have rabies and you get the vaccine, your life's saved. Win yeah, I know, right? Crazy. Um, so the first person to receive Pasteur's live attenuated rabies vaccine was a nine-year-old schoolboy by the name of Joseph Meister. And here's this little guy. He did live, so just heads up. There he is. Oh, yeah. Good oh, yeah, jacket. that's him. He's little, so I know. Cute. He's a oh, cute little goodness. haircut and everything going on. The little uh, this jacket. The little jacket, I know. <laughs> and they're so serious in these pictures. <laughs> yeah. So this little kid was attacked and bitten 14 times by a local dog. Whoa. And this happened. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot. A lot. He was he was he was hurting. Um this happened in German occupied Alaish on July 4th, 1885. So this would have been in like the Germany, France region. Uh, he had deep bites to the right hand and to the thighs and the leg. The owner of the dog received one bite to the arm before the dog was shot by police. But the dog's owner was bitten through cloth and it didn't leave a wound, so he didn't get sick. 
this poor kid went through an ordeal even after being bitten 14 times. So after the initial vaccine, he received 12 more injections over the course of 10 days, and he survived. Yeah. This is when they were trying to figure out the balance of the vaccine and, and, and how to use this attenuated disease, which is basically just reducing the virulence of the pathogen, but still keeping it viable, which is what we do now. Trying to get that, you know, to work so that it would be um, factored in for people of, you know, of certain ages, of certain um, biologies, just Pasteur was doing what he could, but this kid lived, which is amazing. So there was another successful vaccine delivery that was made in the same year when a 15-year-old shepherd was bit by a rabid dog. And then in August, the following year, 1886, Pasteur reported that of over 1,235 recipients of the vaccine, only three, or 0.2%, had died. That's a success rate. Wow. Yeah, that success rate is bananas. So, off of Pasteur's work, there were, of course, a lot more scientists in the following decades and centuries who were making discoveries based off of what he had done. They're studying rabies, they're studying vaccines, the rabies vaccine specifically. And then in the 1960s, with the invention of the electron microscope, that only furthered these developments, because that was the first time that rabies, along with many other bacteria and viruses, were able, be able to be observed at such a detailed level. So that kind of takes us like all the way up to now. Um, but I found the last couple of paragraphs in this National Library of Medicine article to be probably the best way to sum all of this up. So I'll just read that off. It's a direct quote. Um, Our understanding of the mechanisms and primary and secondary prevention of rabies in animals and in humans has profoundly changed since the laws of Ashuna were introduced by one of the earliest known civilizations, which is those cuneiform tablets. Yet despite this and great progress in symptomatic management of encephalitic patients, clinicians caring for animals or patients with symptomatic rabies remain as powerless today as they were 4,000 years ago. Rabies remains today the most lethal disease known to man, and modern medicine has offered no tangible improvement. We wait and hope for researchers to identify antiviral agents capable of controlling progression of clinically declared rabies. Rabies became a neglected disease when it was eliminated from Europe and North America. It is emerging in some island territories and remains uncontrolled in most of the developing world, where surveillance of dog bites, rabies exposures, syndromic or laboratory confirmed, or rabies deaths is poor. The prevention of human rabies deaths in 21st century still rests on tools and strategies developed in the 19th century. While we strive for all dogs to be vaccinated, a major effort is urgently needed to make the time-proven and well-tolerated vaccine and immunoglobin geographically and financially accessible in a timely way to those people who remain the most vulnerable to rabies, the rural populations of developing countries. Read mostly non-white people. Hmm. Yeah. So as soon as it was eliminated from areas that white people controlled... We went, well, fuck them, and let everyone else suffer. So this is where this paper is kind of encouraging researchers to start really paying attention. India is one of the places where they have some of the most rabies cases because of the number of stray dogs that are there. So that is where a lot of the research is happening now. Rabies is horrifying. Yeah. Uh, you... Don't fuck with it. Did you... I might have zoned out. Did you talk about 
what the process is like to get the rabies vaccine now? I did not. Um, that did come up, however. Do you know so, what it is? I isn't it like three or four? So my doses? so my teacher in high school was a veterinarian and had to get a rabies shot once. Oh, it's okay. not a typical. It's not like a flu shot. It's not like uh, it's not a nice shot. A major yeah. trigger warning. It's a giant. Like, trigger warning for needles and medical procedures. It's a giant needle. And they put it in your stomach. Oh. And you have to do it three or four times over the course of weeks. Yeah, that's it. It's okay. not that's... fun. Ooh. Don't fuck around with rabies. But also, dying is terrible. Right. So it says... Also, um... The CDC says the first dose of the four-dose course should be administered as soon as possible after exposure. Additional doses should be administered on days 3, 7, and 14. Damn! Yep. There oh, was, and um, they say don't, don't put it in the glutes. <laughs> yeah. There was a Criminal Minds episode, I think, where, like, a serial killer was capturing people and forcing them to get rabies and like keeping them captive and watching them die of rabies it was uh, a lot that's a good episode that's horrifying yeah it's a really cool episode but also like i had to go into my divorce from reality Ooh, scientists oh ate a little bit here and there it's pretty it it reminds me a lot of like zombies i'm sure that's part of where zombie lore comes from like the mm -hmm. the violent aggressive zombie thing because oh, that's, that's all true. I could think of yeah. when I was watching it. Like, it was a that lot. That makes sense. Yike. Yike. Uh, okay, so medical stuff. I'm done, Kayla. Please help. <laughs> I am here to the rescue. <laughs> so that was fun. Um, <laughs> babies and dolphins. Babies and dolphins. Did you imagine right. a rabid dolphin? <laughs> no no why it's why would like you say the that? worst no. fucking creature ever uh. <laughs> all right all right all right so it's july 1954 it's a hot day a man arrives into a tokyo airport in japan he's of caucasian appearance and conventional looking but the officials are suspicious on checking his passport they see that he hails from a country called tered the passport looks genuine except for the fact that there is no such country as tered the man is interrogated and asked to point out where his country supposedly exists on the map. He immediately points his finger towards the principality of Andorra, which become, and then becomes angry and confused. He'd never heard of Andorra and can't understand why his homeland of Torrid isn't there. According to him, it should have been, for it had existed for the last thousand years. Custom, customs officials found him in possession of money from several different European currencies. His passport had been stamped by many airports around the globe, including previous visits to Tokyo. Baffled, they took him to a local hotel and placed him in a room with two guards until they could get to the bottom of the mystery. The company he claimed to work for had no knowledge of him, although he had copious amounts of documentation to prove his point. The hotel he claimed to have a reservation for had never heard of him either. The company officials in Tokyo he was there to do business with? They never heard of him either. Later, when the hotel room that he was held in was opened, the man had disappeared. The police established that he could not have escaped out of a window. The room was several floors up, and there was no balcony. 
He was never seen again, and the mystery was never solved. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is a story I first stumbled across on Reddit. Um, it was about the scariest slash creepiest theories you ever know. The story immediately grabs my attention because it's kind of got all the classic elements of a classic urban legend. You, there's a mystery and just enough plausibility to wonder maybe what if. So there are a handful of iterations of the story. And the sorry, a spider called on me and freaked me out. <laughs> Ooh. We're good. There are a handful of iterations of the story that can be found online. In some, they list the city as Tamaratsit, as the capital of the sovereign state of Tored. Now, it's ignorant to assume that just because you're not familiar with the name of country or the name doesn't show up on a conventional map, that it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And you don't have to be a country to issue a passport, I found out. For example, the Iroquois League can issue travel papers, as well can the Sovereign Military Order of Malta. But these documents aren't necessarily accepted as entry into every country. <laughs> So, Tored could have been a place, or an issuing body, except it wasn't. There is a place called Tamrasavo. It's both a city and a province in Algeria. And there is a group of people in a language around Algeria known as the Toreg. But this man's Torah between France and Spain just does not exist in any records. So, if the country of his origin is fake, the story has to be, right? Right. So, where the hell did this come from, anyways? So we can thank uh, Jacques Berger. Um, he is an interesting character unto himself. Um, his Wikipedia describes him as a chemical engineer, member of the French Resistance, spy, journalist, and writer. It's a resume and a half. So in 1964, he wrote a book, uh, Rire avec le savant, which roughly translates into Laugh with the Scholars. And this is the first mention of the Man from Torres story. Unfortunately, I could not find a copy of this book. But in 1970, he wrote another book where the Man from Torres was, was mentioned. The book was called L'Extraterrestre Le, Le dans l'Histoire. This is my terrible French, by the way. Roughly meaning extraterrestrials in history. I did, I did find a copy of this book, and you know that with a title like that, it's going to be good. <laughs> so... The book was never translated into English, but with the help of Google Translate and my friend Josie, I was able to kind of translate the section from the man to read. Um, and the chapter appears he's discussing people who have appeared or disappeared miraculously. And his version of the story goes, And more recently, the story of Tered, so beautiful that I never tire of telling of it. In 1954, riots took place in Japan, so violent that the personal representative of the President of the United States could not disembark. The Japanese government, admitting that it was unable to ensure his safety, wanting to prove that these riots were the work of foreign agitators they be they had the passports of all foreign residents residing in japan checked a character was found in a hotel who possessed a seemingly flawless passport no scratching or overprinting the photograph was accurate as were the fingerprints only one difficulty but a major one the passport had been issued by the country of Tourette, which did not exist on the surface of the globe this individual was questioned and according to him the Tourette went on a map from Mauritania to Sudan, including them as well as part of Algeria. It was in Tered that the real Arab Legion was organized, destined to liberate all Arab peoples from oppression. He had come to Japan to buy weapons in 1954. Oh <laughs> my god. You know, when the American soldiers and stuff were still all there and like they weren't even allowed to have an army yet. <laughs> wow. 
So, yeah, so indignant people doubted the existence of this country. He gave a press conference, after which all the journalists rushed to the atlases, then to the teletypes. They wired the United Nations, the Arab League, UNESCO, everywhere, and no one had ever heard of Tored. It was no, it was no more absurd than any other African state, but it did not exist. In any case, not on this planet. Before being locked up in a Japanese mental asylum, the, the emissary of Tourette gave interviews, in particular to the English Weekly Press. He had no idea why no one believed him. The passport on examination turned out to be quite normal. It was written in Arabic, and the only problem is that the country itself just didn't exist. This character, periodically questioned by the press, persisted in saying the same thing. We can obviously find rational explanations for this as well as anything. It was once explained that the meteorites were perfectly normal rocks that had been struck by lightning. It has been explained that ball lighting was caused by owls, which having stayed in a hollow or rotting tree, had coated themselves with phosphorescent material. Okay. Ball lightning is owls with phosphorescent material. Oh. That's uh, the best theory I've ever heard. <laughs> That's okay. So it was unclear how these owls could get inside the cavern of an airplane while flying 800 miles an hour and then explode which ball lighting commonly does, but the owl explanation seems satisfactory for scientific circles until 1965. So for two centuries. <laughs> Just owl ball lighting. Wow. wow. So and then he finishes and says, that's why I'm skeptical of a purely psychological explanation for the Casper Hauser story and the Torrid story. So 1974, Berger would write um, extraterrestrial visitations from P.S. Dark Times to the present. And he would include the Man from Tord story again from the 1970-1964 book. And this book would eventually be translated into English. In 1981, the book The Directory of Possibilities was published by John Grant and Colin Wilson. In this book was a section appearing, a section under the section Appearing People, written by Paul Bagg. There is one sentence dedicated to the Man from Tourette. It says, And in 1954, a passport check in Japan is alleged to have produced a man with papers issued by the nation of Tourette. And that is the only sentence. And yet this is the most common site, source that people cite for the story. One sentence. Love wow. It. So, and, and since there obviously, you know, there have been more, this story has been like published so many times in different versions since then. But where did Berger hear the story? He spent the bulk of his life living in France. Did he just make the entire thing up? So the internet loves to use this story as an evidence of parallel universes. And it's and it's a fun thought experiment. Like, imagine you just going about your life. You're doing business trips around the world like you usually do. And you arrive at airport security and they tell you that your country of origin doesn't exist and that they're going to apprehend you. Which would be wow. really terrifying. <laughs> yeah, wow. But it would probably actually make a movie, which I'm, I'm surprised there isn't a movie based on this. Right. Um, but what's the real story? On July 29th, 1960, in the British House of Commons, on the subject of frontier formalities, so the administrative process behind which a person enters a territory or another country, they included the mention of a name named John Allen Zegru, who was then being prosecuted in Japan for using a false passport. This is a quote from that thing, the British House of Commons. It says, My Honor... May you know the case of John Allen Zegro, who is present being prosecuted in Japan. In evidence, he describes himself as an intelligence agent for, Col uh, for Colonel Nasser and a naturalized Ethiopian. This man, according to the evidence, has traveled all over the world and a very impressive-looking passport indeed. 
It is written in a language that is unknown and is, has remained unidentified, although it has been studied for a long time by philologists. The passport is stated to have been issued in Tamarinsat, the capital of the independent sovereign state of Tred. Neither the country nor the language can be identified, although a great deal of time has been spent trying to. When the accused was cross-examined, he said that it, it was a state of two million people somewhere south of the Sahara. This man has been around the world on this passport without hindrance, a passport which, as far as we know, is written in an invented language from an invented country. I would stress, therefore, that passports are not very good security checks. Nope. <laughs> I could have told you that. <laughs> so, this, says, this tells us that it was in 1959 that Zegers arrived, not the 1954, the Bergier says. Um, and it was a fake passport that was apparently so convincing that he managed to travel to other countries around the world. And he didn't run into problems until Japan. So, in today's high security world, there's no way anyone could ever get away with this. But in 1959, they didn't have databases to check, and passports were a little more than a small booklet with a picture, a stamp template, which is often then filled in by hand. And the only thing official about them usually is like there's an embossed cover and some passport stamps. Like, old school oh, passports legit. weren't that crazy. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, the old adage of just act like you belong can never ring more true. But this passport was only part of Zegers' con. According to the summary of a Japanese radio broadcast from December 1961, the Tokyo District Court on, on December 1961 sentenced John Allen K. Zegru, a man without nationality, to one year imprisonment for having illegally entered Japan and passing phony checks. Zegru, a self-styled American, had professedly acted as an agent of the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Central Intelligence Agency, entered the country in 1959 on a bogus passport. But working for the FBI and the CIA. Both. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> this, <laughs> this story was seemingly reported around the world as one source from August 15, 1960 is from the province, which is a Vancouver newspaper. <laughs> and it's like one of the most cited like resources on this is like it's Vancouver. Why was Vancouver writing this? Who knows? Anyways. It says, Mr. Zegrub wanted to travel around the world to impress officials. He wanted a nation, sorry, he invented a nation, a capital, a people, and a language. All these he recorded on a passport, which he made himself. Victims of bureaucracy all over the universe would be delighted to hear that he was wonderfully received everywhere, well, almost everywhere. John claimed to be a naturalized Ethiopian and intelligence agent from uh, Colonel Nasser. The passport was stamped as issued in Tamarinsat, the capital of Tored, south of the Sahara, quotes, and any place so romantically named ought to exist, but they don't. John Allen Kuchar Zegreth invented them. Armed with the wonderful do this wonderful document, Mr. Zegreth traveled royally throughout the Middle East, accepting homage wherever he went. And if there were any doubters, they were invited to read the kind of proclamation between the National Tread stamp, which reads, which is just a bunch of, it doesn't look like a language at all, there's most of the vowels, and it's like a sentence, though, with random letters. Um, and that was the clincher, but it didn't mean anything in any language. The gallant gesture from the individualists unfortunately ended with the Japanese in Tokyo. They began looking at looking at maps. John Allen is now in court as a martyr to the Japanese thoroughness. So you can find these small snippets and articles articles about Mr. Zegger S kind of all over the place on the internet, but none of them really tell you the whole picture, and they a lot of them vary a lot from one telling to the next. 
So other than these articles, it's hard to find much about what happened to Zegrus, but a Japanese Reddit user known as Terauchi seemed to have found, had the same questions that I did, and they did their own research, and they wrote a blog in Japanese, but God bless Google Translate. <laughs> and they cited a bunch of other newspapers and articles that he found in Japan. Most interestingly was a book. So the book is titled, and that roughly translates to The Mysterious Dictor, Dictator King Jim... Well, that, that's not right. Okay, I feel like it. Yeah, it's supposed to be Kim. <laughs> I wrote that wrong. Uh, yeah, Mysterious Dictator Kim, uh, Kim Jong-il Taibyodong, Intelligence, Terrorism, and Abduction. Written by Atsuyuki Sasa and published in 1999. So it turns out that Atsuyuki Sasa was the first head of, Jap of Japan's now-defunct Cabinet of Security Affairs Office. So, guy's probably seen some shit and enough to write a book about it anyways. Oh, and he actually wow. worked on Zegris's case. So the book is only available in J Japanese, and I had to jump through a bunch of hoops to get my hands on a copy of the ebook, but I got it. And then came trans translation between Google Translate and cross-referencing a bunch of other sources. I bring you the story of the ambassador from Nagashi Habashi. So, on February 11th, 1960, John Allen K. Zagras, who was 35, was taken into custody by the Morinachi police station for trying to cash counterfeit checks to the Chase Manhattan Bank and the Japanese branch of the Bank of Korea. And it wasn't a small amount. This is fraud totaling about 350,000 yen. So if you count for inflation and, um, and like currency conversion, it'd be around $9,000 US right now. Which doesn't seem like a big deal, but Atsuyaki mentions at that point that's nearly the same amount as his yearly salary was at the time. So, a fair chunk of change. Yeah. So, Zegers was a strange foreigner. He was 175 centimeters tall, appearing Caucasian, and a self-proclaimed American. He had arrived in Japan on October 1959 with his Korean wife, who was 30. Zegers' case landed on Atsuyaki's desk, which was unusual. Foreign crimes were usually typically handled by the Criminal Investigation Division 3. Atsuyuki asked Inspector Kazuo Machida, who tells him that the, this guy wasn't some small fry, but was the ambassador of the country, Nagashi Habashi, and was CIA. So Machida confirms that the passport says that it was indeed issued by Naga Nagashi Habashi, and that it was thick and full of stamps from all over. And he says that Zegar was arrested. He began screaming at them to release him immediately because he was a, had diplomatic immunity. The arresting officer had put a map in front of Zegers and asked him to point out his country, and he pointed to a little south of Ethiopia. So, in Zegers' passport, the full name of the country reads something like Nageshi Habashi Koryo Esprit, which roughly translates into the Great and Royal Republic of Nagash. Nagash is not a country, but there is a small village located in Ethiopia. But if Zegers was trying to claim that that village Nagash was his country, he would have had to point to the northern point of Ethiopia, not south of the entire country. Oof. So Zegers' passport indicated that he was both an ambassador and a traveling ambassador, meaning that he was not stationed anywhere in particular. But parts of his passport were written in a different language, one that Zegers called Nagashi Hevesi, which he said was an Arabic language of the Muslim world in the same family as Esperanto. Atsuki called bullshit. Um, he made several calls to a bunch of professors specializing in foreign languages, and they quickly found that there was no known language with similar words or grammar. An interpreter had to be found to communicate with Zegers because despite him knowing English, German, French, Italian, and Spanish, 
in another nine languages. Japanese wasn't one of them, so an English interpreter mm. was brought in. God. So calls to the Middle East uh, and African divisions of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs quickly confirmed that there were no records of Nageshi Habeshi being a country, and there was nothing to confirm that he worked for the CIA. It was clear that he was obviously lying. No. It didn't take long to prove that the passport was fake, made by Ziggers himself, and not only did they not the, the passport not really matched any others around the world, but Ziggers' hotel room was searched and a stamp was that matched the issuing stamp was found there. So the guy made it himself. So but strangely, he did have some official documentation. A visa from the Japanese embassy in Taipei issued on October 17th, 1959. This visa had several stamps in it by Japanese government's diplomatic missions in southeastern countries, and it was this visa that got him into Japan in the first place. An investigation was opened to determine who stamped the visa first, and the situation caused an uproar among the Japanese Immigration Bureau and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. No one likes to have their work called into question. So someone along the line saw this guy's passport and gave him a visa. And like, okay, here you go. <laughs> Yeah, you're wow. <laughs> uh, that, that suave, that talented to just, <laughs> you know, get in, do stuff. Yeah. So despite all of this, Sears continued to tell lies. The investigators knew he was lying, but until that they could, this could get all sorted, everything he said had to be taken seriously and investigated. So... Ziggers told endless iterations of his life, but the general story is that he was born in the U.S., but grew up in the Czech Republic and Germany, then went to England, where he finished high school. He was in a pilot in the Royal Air Force during World War II, and was once a prisoner of war in Germany. After the war, he lived in Latin America. He then became a U.S. military intelligence officer in Korea, and eventually worked as a pilot in Thailand and Vietnam. He then went on a special mission with the Arab Coalition and became a diplomat of the country, Nagashi Habashi, near the border of Ethiopia. Then he came to Japan on a top-secret mission to recruit Japanese volunteers for the Arab Grand Coalition. That's <laughs> uh, a lot. That's a lot, a lot. Right? And they had to check into each one of these claims. Okay. So every single one of these had to be validated through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and in every single case, the embassies reported back that there was no records of this guy. Meanwhile, Zegers' Korean wife was being questioned. She, too, had a forged passport from Nagashi Habeshi, but also an official Korean passport. She seemed to totally believe that Zegers was an Arab Union diplomat. With a clear port of origin, Mrs. Zegers was deported to her home country of South Korea. So it's like, was she in on it? Did she actually believe, like, was he scamming her too? Right. Don't know. Don't even have her name. <laughs> so the Do the Tokyo District Public Prosecutor's Office must have gotten sick of chasing down Ziggers' origins as they threw in the towel and eventually declared him as having an unknown nationality. Ziggers' court-appointed defense attorney had to defend his client without knowing where he was from or even knowing for sure that the name he provided was his actual legal name. This was an unprecedented case, and it garnered a fair amount of media attention. And the English newspaper newspapers nicknamed him as the Mystery Man. Imagine trying someone that you don't know where they're from or if this is actually their name. <laughs> if you don't, you don't know the... anything about this is true. 
This was in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> right, where every record is handwritten or typed. Yeah, there's no cross-referencing. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Like any. Like, eventually you're going to hit a wall and you're just going to, I guess they just have yeah. to deal with this. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I ought to be a grifter in the time before computers. Crazy. <laughs> just... You could. I was literally listening to Behind the Bastards, and he was talking about someone who did something bad. I forget the guy's name. Something to do with the NRA. Anyways, he like got into trouble as a kid, changed one letter in his name, and went undetected for the rest of his life. Oh my, oh my god! god. Uh, I mean, I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. All right. So, Japan post World War Two. Um there was a bunch of U.S. soldiers and troops that were stationed out there for pretty much the next 10 years to kind of, like, keep Japan in check. Um, just because, you know, you were on the wrong side of the war. And I lost where I was. Okay, so at this point in 1960, the first Japan-U.S. security treaty was... Protests against this was rampant at the time because they had just made a deal with the U.S. to kind of like start to get some of their own independence back. Um, and part of that was they were kind of asking for um, like an economic kickstart because their economy was suffering really bad. And so like the the politicians are trying to work this out with the U.S. officials, and then the people are getting fucking pissed because they're like, well, we don't need anybody's help, or like, you know, we shouldn't rely on them, we can't trust them. Tons of different reasons. Everyone was pissed, and there was riots happening everywhere. So this kept the local police busy day and night. Foreign security was a hot topic in everyone's mind, and soon Atsuki, Atsuki and his department had to turn their focuses to that and left the case with the Tokyo District Public Prosecutors as a case of immigration control and fraud. Atsuki forgot about the case in the next couple months, but then on August 10th, Ziegler caused a commotion, bringing Atsuki's attention back to the strange case. The court had come to a verdict on August 10th that Ziegler's sentence was supposed to take place. The judge handed down the sentence of one year imprisonment, but before the interpreter could translate the sentence, um, trigger warning, uh, Ziggers produced a shard of glass and sliced both of his wrists. What the uh, fuck? What? Shit. The court was in shock and the bailiff rushed in, and while Ziggers was screaming in English that he was going to kill himself, he was rushed to the Kilbashi Hospital by ambulance where it was determined that his injuries were fairly minor and would be healed in about 10 days. Jeez. What the hell was his plan? <laughs> year in prison is a very light sentence, especially in Japan. And it's like he wasn't even being fined for anything. Considering what he did? Yeah. Like... yeah. <laughs> okay. So it turns out while Zegers was held in detention awaiting for his sentencing, he was studying Japanese criminal procedures. He had somehow come to the conclusion that if an accident happened to interrupt the sentencing, the sentencing could not take effect and the trial would then have to be rescheduled. Asuki isn't sure where he got this idea, but it wasn't true, though I did put off the sentencing for a little bit. Where did he get the glass shard? Well, it's suspected that he smashed the face of his wristwatch and placed the shard in his mouth and kept it there until sentencing. Damn. Oh my god. The dedication! Right? Oof. So despite his best efforts, Ziggers was sentenced and for a while Asuki heard no other word of the mysterious ambassador from Nagashi Habishi. Political tensions continued to rise in Japan, protests growing more and more intense, becoming violent, and leading to the death of pro- protesters and even some politicians. Civil unrest between the people and law enforcement began to heat up until protests 
laid siege to the National Personal Authority Building and the Metropolitan Police Department. 100,000 protesters gathered outside, and their activity was enough to make the entire building shake. So this is early 1961 when Zegers came up with another brilliant idea. He filed a lawsuit from prison against the superintendent, Bumpai Hira, and others demanding punishment for embezzlement and damages in the amount of $1 million. According to the complaint, the Japanese police department has been accused of negligent misappropriation of funds, and the Japanese police wrongfully arrested Ambassador Zegers and confiscated secret plans for Nagashi Habeshi's nuclear energy development that were in his possession. So, like, he kind of hoped to take advantage of people's, like, distrust and upset with the uh, law enforcement that that might boost his interest in his case and get him, like, support, but I don't know, I guess he didn't produce any evidence or no one cared because nothing came from it. Fall of 1961, Ziggers was released from prison after serving his one-year sentence. And Japan, having their fill of the ambassador from Nagashi Hadashi, deported him to his last port of call before entering Japan, Hong Kong. Asayuki had joked that maybe they should have deported him to space since they had no idea of his country of origin. But there was a thought that seemed to stick with him even 30 years later. Where was Ziggers now? What did Hong Kong do with him? Did they just eject him to his previous port of call? But what if he was ejected from that port to the next? Where would he wind up in the end? Oh, I have a picture of a newspaper article I can share with you guys. So this is from a Japanese newspaper at the time. This is the only known picture that we have of this guy. Oh, wow. Okay. So, Atsuki, like he never got his answer, he passed away in 2018. The story clearly somehow wound up being reported on in England, Vancouver, and around Japan, which still had many American soldiers and diplomats in the area. And if Berger was basing a story on one of these articles, it could have been a game of translation telephone. Details changed. Somehow 1959 became 1954. Nagashi Habeshi turned into Torrid, and instead of getting his comeuppance, Ziggers disappeared into the other. The perfect fodder for a conspiracy. So apparently I'm here to ruin all the good conspiracy theories. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) But there are still mysteries. Um, Who was his wife? And was she really clueless about his fraud? Did they get back together after his sentencing? Where was he really from? What was his real name? What happened to him after he landed in Hong Kong? There are no answers out there. Searching Zegers' name in English primarily produces a plethora of conspiracy and occult websites. And if you search his name in Japanese, you get a lot more um, legitimate news and Wikipedia articles detailing the real guy in the actual situation with few mentions of the mention of the myth of the man from Torrid. As a long shot, I turned to Reddit to get Zegers' name translated into Chinese. <laughs> a user was kind enough to do the translation, and I tried searching with little luck. Uh, another user told me that they did a search as well and didn't really come back with anything and also thought that maybe it was something to do with China's Great Firewall. Um, I have another friend that I asked about it and what she told me is that since this would happened, it would have been in Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong wasn't reabsorbed into China until 1997. 
So anything that happened before that should be available record. China doesn't really care about what gets out of the country. So if something happened when he got back, it wasn't in that name or it just has not been digi- it, it has not been digitized. So yeah, that's kind of where my research ended. We don't know if Ziggurat was his name, and when he landed back in Hong Kong, assuming that he didn't, they didn't just deport him right away, he could have easily changed names. It was likely his story wasn't well known there. He seemed to have run short of cash, which is what got him into trouble in the first place in Japan, but maybe he had a stash of cash in Hong Kong, and we know he's no stranger to writing fraudulent checks. It wouldn't be hard to disappear and never be found again. All we have on him is, you know, the newspaper article and that picture. So, while he didn't come from a parallel dimension, his real-life circumstances were almost as bizarre. He may as well have been the way he disappeared, never to be heard from again. That is fucking bananas. Right. Yeah. My gosh. I'm just thinking about, like, I know people disappear now, right? But then it's not like we had cameras everywhere. That is just so, it would have been a lot easier. Wow. So easy back then. Yeah. I I am <laughs> It's like a combination of of the guy from Catch Me If You Can, DB Cooper, although this guy didn't jump out of a plane. <laughs> and then... <laughs> I'm sure there's some stories where he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, likely. He robbed the plane and then jumped out and then jumped onto a train and robbed that train and ran off. Um, I, oh God, that's just so fascinating. Right? And it's like, the urban legend's fun, but the fact that some guy actually fucking did this. Seriously, like, though. What happened to him? Yeah. Like, what did he do <sighs> for the next, like, you know, six years of his life or whatever? Who was his wife? Who was his wife? Did she actually Who know was what was going wife? on? Is she in what? the same hole that Shelly Miscavige is? We'll never what? know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, like I don't know. I can imagine like if you're in South Korea, this is sometime shortly after World War II, this mm-hmm. guy shows up who seems to be somewhat wealthy, um, well put together, look appearingly Caucasian guy, who's gonna promising to whisk you off and take you around the world. That'd be a pretty easy like thing to fall for. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, and being in a good suit and being well spoken gets you lots mm-hmm. of places. Totally. A lot of doors. Yeah. Yeah. And this was this was Korea and this would have been post Korean War too. So like Mhm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, I it's like want to know what happened to it. <laughs> I know, I was like, driving me crazy. Like, that's like, I went into forest to try and figure out the Chinese name, right? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I, I, I need to know. <laughs> but we might never know. Probably not. Wild. Yeah. Disappeared off into the world. And like, the picture of him, he's like such a generic, like, dude. Yep. Yep. Like, he could have been, it could have been anyone. Be anybody. It's like somebody's neighbor. Yeah. And, like, they wrote him down as Caucasian, but he may not have been. Right. Right. He's got a very ambiguous-looking face, right? So. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's the myth of the man from Tored. I love it. And I guess that's another episode. All right. Woo! My head hurts. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> just not, like, actually, like, a headache, just, like, 
Yeah. It was a lot. It was a lot. lot. Too much. Brain brain slurry and brain head box. Brain slurry. I like that. No big brain. Yep. (laughs) That's it for this week. Next week, Nathan's going to tell us about Lady Pirates. As always, links, pictures, and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. To keep up with all things exceptional, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at The Human Exception. Have a story that you want us to cover or want to tell us that we're wrong or you just want to say hi, you can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And if you want to get on the fun, you can join us on our Discord server. Link can be found on our contact page. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend. Welcome back to the Human Exception. This week, Courtney, nope, that's the wrong week.